0: How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. So, I am beginning a new series on the development of doctrine, also known as the evolution of Catholic dogma. We're going to be getting into some of those terminological issues today, but this has probably been my most requested series. Everybody's always asking me about the development of doctrine, I did a lot of research into this when I was a Protestant, obviously, and then since then I've gotten deeper into some of those issues, especially studying fundamental theology, Uh, Gary Goo talks about this a lot, but we're going to be going over uh, basically today some really easy issues of terminology that'll help us out in the future, but this is going to be really long, uh, possibly like 30, 40, 50 videos. And they're going to be short and frequent. Uh, I'm not going to do a few massively long videos, but kind of try to get this down one bite at a time. So this should be really, really fun. I'm sure this will be informative for a lot of people. And uh, I just wanted to put it out there. Uh, If any Orthodox or Protestants, uh, apologists or whatever are watching right now, I will... Uh, definitely discuss this issue with you in a polemical context because I think this is something that's important, and I definitely think the Catholic Church has the uh, the best position uh, on this issue of the development of doctrine, evolution of dogma. I'll I'll call it the evolution of dogma uh, from now on. I prefer that terminology. So uh, before we begin, uh, if you really appreciate me doing this series, uh, definitely consider becoming a patron or subscribe star, or you can, uh, if you really love me, I guess, you can uh, directly donate or PayPal at militantomas at gmail.com or Cash App, which is just cbwagner7x. So uh, first, uh, when it comes to a note on terminology, Uh, This is definitely controversial. Uh, There's this sort of uh, common, uh, it's a common myth. Uh, There's really no truth behind this, that the difference between the evolution of dogma and the development of doctrine is that the evolution of dogma is the evil modernist uh, way of phrasing things, and that the development of doctrine is the true and Catholic way of phrasing things. And this isn't really, uh, true. Uh, this isn't really true at all. Uh, Catholic theologians actually use both phrases, uh, but evolution of dogma is the more popular phrase to use. And this is actually seen in the life of Newman, uh, who is going to be a recurring theme because I think Newman, while certainly groundbreaking on this issue and, uh, even continental Catholic theologians recognize uh, that he is groundbreaking on this issue. Uh, first, uh, he, he does have a few um, terminological issues. Uh, he has a few uh, minor mistakes uh, throughout his uh, essay, and we can excuse this because throughout the rest of his life, he he does clarify in other writings that people don't read. Um, so, but that that's all to say uh, when Newman did write uh, the famous uh, Perone letters, uh, he did actually use the phraseology of the evolution of dogma, because that's just, in Catholic theology, the more uh, popular terminology to use. So really, we're weird uh, when we use the phrase uh, development of doctrine, and then uh, are scared of using the phrase of the evolution of dogma. But the distinction uh, that is present between the Catholic and then the modernist, versions of the evolution of dogmas between what's known as the homogeneous uh, or homogeneous i'm just gonna say homogeneous because that's what i've been uh, that that's at least how it was taught to me although i've heard people say both but the difference between a homogeneous and then a transformistic uh, evolution so if you think about uh, a transformistic evolution that would be uh, like and we're gonna get this get into this uh, later in a lot more detail but a transformistic evolution would be like uh, Kind of Darwinism, uh, at least how old Darwinism used to think, like okay, we got a monkey, and the monkey become man. Uh, that's that's a transformation uh, right there. They are completely different species. They're completely different things. Where uh, the Type of evolution that we're talking about is a homogeneous evolution. So that would be like the difference between uh, Newman uses this uh, phrase, uh, this imagery that we uh, in Catholic theology uh, generally use this imagery between the seed and the tree. Uh, That is an example of a homogeneous. Uh, evolution, or maybe the history of a certain people. Um, That'd be another example of homogeneous uh, evolution. Or uh, we can think of a thinker who works out uh, throughout his entire life um, a a certain idea that he had when he was younger. Uh, That's another example of homogeneous evolution. So again, uh, the modernistic theory was condemned, and this language of the evolution of dogma uh, definitely uh, was not not coined by the modernists, but it was taken over by the modernists and uh, seen as their sole uh, property. But uh, either way, we should take the advice of St. Augustine in De Doctrina Christiana, where he says, if they who are called philosophers, particularly the Platonists, have said things that are true and in conformity with our faith. Not only are these not to be feared, but they should be wrested from them as from unjust possessors and turned to our advantage. So there is some areas of truth that are present in some of uh, some of what the modernists have said, uh, but again, fundamentally, they're heretical. So what we ought to do is we ought to restore it uh, in Christ, and we ought to cleanse away all of the errors and to take it back uh, for ourselves. So we ought not to be scared of the terminology or even some of the ideas, uh, but we ought to recognize that every error really has its uh, foundation in a corruption of truth. Uh, so we ought to take that truth and be able to run with it uh, in a Catholic sense. So uh, in, in order to uh, prove this, because I can, I can already hear uh, the very aggressive uh newman hater trad types saying that i am being utterly uh, modernistic right now and using this language of the evolution of dogma or even the idea of evolution of dogma i just wanted to quote some principal uh theologians that are uh, traditional and anti-modernistic so the first is cardinal bo in his de ecclesia christi thesis 17 he says Quote, this law of evolution, which rules all living organisms, we see verified also in the Church of Christ, which, whilst uh, seduously uh, guarding the dogmas entrusted to her, detracts nothing from them. In treating faithfully and wisely the old doctrine, she pursues with all diligence this one endeavor, to determine and perfect that which previously was formless and inchoate, to consolidate and firm up that which is already expressly stated and explained, to safeguard what which is, that which is already firmly established and defined. And then also uh, Monsignor Van Nort, in his De Fontibus uh, Revelationis, he says, In the first place, it is certain that the increase of which we have spoken does not involve a change in the doctrine itself, but an organic unfolding or evolution of the same preaching of the same faith. Just as the adult is not a different man from the child, in spite of the fact that his bodily members have grown considerably in size and strength, in like manner, the preaching of the church remains always the same in reality, even if with the passing of time it has evolved or become more developed. And then uh, Father Berthier, which uh, he was a Dominican theologian, not many know him, unfortunately, but he was uh, famous for his de locis. Uh, He says... Quote, Hence, it is clear that for us, the unfolding of the doctrine handed down is in no way a uh, permutation, but an evolution or progress of the same truth, not with regard to its substance, but with regard to its explication. So, uh, in order to, uh, and then there's the the second part of this. Uh, people not only get mad about it being called an evolution rather than a development, but uh, using the language of Dogma rather than doctrine. So, uh, in order to uh, kind of deal with this problem, we need to distinguish uh, four types of doctrine because of the relationship between dogma and doctrine, uh, while technically uh, there is a technical aspect of doctrine as distinct from dogma, generally speaking, doctrine is just speaking about teaching. So, dogma is technically a subset of doctrine. And since the the area in which uh, there is the most fierce debate uh, is over dogma. Uh, that's really what we uh, name it by. We name it by dogma because that is where there is the uh, most debate. That and technically, if we take doctrine in the widest sense, that would include revelation and you would fall into a lot of problems. So actually, dogma uh, is a more conservative uh, way of phrasing things and really um The modernists, in in a weird way, the modernists fall into the error of positing an evolution of doctrine uh, because they include uh, not only uh, doctrines, uh, theological inclusions, um, uh, infallible truths and dogmas, but they also include uh, revelation itself uh, as an example of uh, evolution, which is not orthodox. And that's really what's condemned in the anti-modernist magisterium. So in order to make some uh, really good distinctions, uh, we need to make a distinction between four uh, degrees of Catholic doctrine. The first is the explicitly revealed. Uh, This is going to be that which is uh, revealed by God before the consideration of any uh, man. Uh, It would be those words directly from the pen of the sacred writer, uh, directly from the mouth of the apostles. That is ex- those, uh, that subset of Catholic doctrine which is explicitly revealed. Then, in the second place, we have uh, dogmas. And dogmas are propositions which are defined by the church as revealed. So, notice it's different from uh, Revelation itself, but it's the definition of what is revealed. And then uh, this also includes uh, those propositions whose opposites have been condemned as heresy. In the third place, we have infallible truths. And uh, these are propositions which are defined as infallibly true, yet not explicitly as revealed, or whose opposites have been condemned as false in an infallible manner. And then in the fourth place, we have theological conclusions. And the theological conclusions, uh, those are really uh, those consequences which are drawn by the theologians as being uh, somehow a conclusion from any of the first three uh, degrees of Catholic doctrine. Uh, and this is going to be the most important. And uh, another quick note, uh, it's called a theological conclusion because it's usually drawn by the theologians. Uh, and this is the the most important for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is the fact that it is just the majority of what the church teaches. Uh, If you go through the Catechism of the Catholic Church, most of the pages uh, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church actually aren't uh, dogma or infallibly defined truths, but they actually are uh, just uh, theological conclusions that are being presented uh, as something which is uh, of a certain degree of certainty. And then also in the manuals which are used to train priests, or at least what Used to be used to train priests. Uh, in these manuals, most of what is presented is uh, theological conclusions. So, really, no treatment of this issue is going to be sufficient unless we talk about theological conclusions and how they relate to the homogeneity of uh, of the evolution of Catholic dogma. And then, second, uh, from the fact that it is universally agreed uh, within Catholic theologians uh, that D- truths of the fourth degree can become truths of the third degree, uh, the objects of uh, infallible uh, definition, infallible truths that aren't dogmas. The objects of those are actually theological inclusions. And then third, it, it really forms the, the central debate of uh, the evolution of Catholic dogma within Catholic schools is how we treat the relationship between the fourth and the second degree. So, can theological conclusions become dogmas, and how does this relate uh, to explicitly revealed truths? Uh, these are going to become important questions. So, no treatment is going to be uh, is going to be a good treatment of this issue unless we cover theological conclusions. So, uh, really, the whole debate rests on two facts. And the first fact is that the amount of dogmas and the depth of the dogmas or the definitiveness of the dogmas have grown. Uh, this really is an undeniable fact. We, we look throughout the, the history of cat, the, the teaching of the Catholic Church, and we see that we have more dogmas uh, now. We have a deeper understanding of dogmas now than we had in the first century. Uh, The Athanasian Creed, for example, the Athanasian Creed is a lot more definitive than the Apostles Creed. Uh, This is just a brute uh, fact of history. And the second uh, fact is that this process has been pushed forward uh, by interactions with Hellenistic philosophy. So the philosophy of the uh, Stoics, Platonists, Neoplatonists, Aristotelians, and so on. Uh, th- this is really uh, where a lot of the tools uh, for the growth of dogmas has occurred. So with these two facts, we kind of have to take them and to coherently present a theory which is both, uh, both explains Uh, What is uh, really explains what is going on theologically and then also accounts for all of the historical facts. So from this, there have been uh, and then actually I I forgot to forgot to mention something. So there's really two sets of questions that arise out of this uh, out of these two historical facts that we're uh, that we're interacting with. So the first uh, set of questions is, is the progress or growth of the Catholic doctrine just mentioned? homogeneous or homogeneous or heterogeneous. So we have to ask ourselves, is it the same thing? Uh, is is does uh, for example, the uh, anti-modernist oath or Pascendi or um, the credo of Pope St Pius, uh, Pius Pope St. Pius Pope St Paul the sixth are do these very developed um, creeds uh, do they contain the same thing? as was contained in the Apostles' Creed, or do they contain different things, which are nevertheless true? That is that is the first set of questions. Is, uh, is what we have now uh, implicitly contained in Revelation in the first uh, degree, or do we actually have a transformation uh, that occurs now? So we have to deal with that question. And then the second set of questions we have to deal with is uh, the question of, uh, are the dogmas, infallible truths, and theological inclusions equally revealed and divine as those of the first degree, or are they human teachings added to the divine po- deposit? And there's also a, a set of questions that fall under this. So some are going to say, uh, actually, dogmas are as divinely revealed as uh, explicit revelation, where theological inclusions and infallible truths are not. Uh, others are going to say all of them are equally uh, divinely revealed, and then others, such as the modernists, are going to are going to say they're all equally heterogeneous. Even uh, if we think about revelation itself uh, as the as the religious sense of a certain group actually uh, evolves, so we have all of these questions that that really face us necessarily. Uh, nobody is allowed to kind of put their fingers in their ears and just pretend like there is absolutely uh, no evolution which occurred. Uh, we the, the credo of Paul the Sixth and the Apostles' Creed. Uh, actually, actually, uh, uh, if we look at like Saint Ignatius, Saint Ignatius could have uh, written the Summa Theologiae. Uh, we we can't present we we can't pretend that that is the truth. We have to have some sort of accounting uh, for how uh, history has interacted uh, with theological reflection, and then the the definition of the Church so uh, from this there are sort of three sets of solutions and i've kind of hinted at that uh, before but the first solution is the modernist solution so what the modernists are going to say and they have uh, some really wacky doctrines and remember that this is a condemned you can't hold to the modernist uh, solution but the modernists are going to say that actually all four degrees of catholic doctrine catholic doctrine as a whole is necessarily uh heterogeneous uh evolutionist and transformationist they're gonna say that actually uh really what revelation is is kind of the sort of interior religious sense that we have and uh in the sort of sense feeling that we have we are able to um have all of these dogmas which are actually just natural symbols which represent this internal uh, sort of feeling that we have uh if if you want to read more about this pashendi uh pashendi is the work to read uh it's very crazy uh but yes this is what they were saying like the dogma of the trinity is really just an expression of my interior religious sense so since uh we have different religious senses now uh we have different symbols or dogmas which are going to uh Which are going to express this. And actually, to retain the old dogmas is really to corrupt the spirit of revelation, uh, garbage like that. So that's what the modernists say. And they were condemned for this. So nobody can hold this. And really, their error was to hold to a transformistic evolution. Uh, We we can't hold to a transformistic evolution when it comes to dogmas. We're we're not allowed to do that. So the second uh, is, and these, the second and third are both Catholic. Uh, solutions and you're able to hold the second or third I hope I convince you that y'all have to hold the third but if you want to hold the second uh, you can go ahead I think um the second one is a bit easier uh, apologetically uh, when it comes to the theoretical aspect and then the third one is a bit easier apologetically when it comes to the historical aspect but this is really just um I I think the 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 third is, It's definitely more true, although I think certain aspects of the second we can use to help explain uh, how the third uh, works. But uh, we're going to get into that a lot later. But the second is going to be the, uh, I I call it the post-Suarezian solution. Uh, The post-Suarezian solution is basically that the second degree, uh, that is Catholic dogma, is homogeneous. So the second degree is just as revealed as the first degree. So the second degree is really just a restating in a clarified form of revelation, explicit revelation. That's, that's what they're going to say about dogmas, which is why they elicit uh, the assent of faith on the fact of the, uh, the formal motive of God revealing them. And then on the other hand, the third and the fourth degrees, so that is infallible truths and then theological conclusions. These are heterogeneous. There is a sort of uh, for the third and fourth degree. This doesn't mean that they're false. Uh, I, I want you to to be clear about that. But there's a sort certain uh, mixing of divine and human truth that happened. There's a there's a major premise that is revealed, and then a minor premise that is a truth of philosophy, and then we're drawing a theological conclusion, which can be infallibly defined by the church, but it can't be uh, brought up to the degree of dogma. So, since there is a mixing of divine and human truth, uh, they brought forward this idea of ecclesiastical faith, uh, because since the formal motive of of, of revelation is uh, is the fact that God Himself has revealed, and the and really uh, the third and fourth degree are heterogeneous and are stating different things that are nevertheless connected with revelation, we can't have the same formal motive. So we have to bring up this idea of ecclesiastical faith uh, to really explain how we're able to have faith in theological conclusions and have faith in infallibly defined, um, sorry, infallibly defined facts. Now the third solution is the traditional solution. Uh, This is the solution that uh, we can find a few instances in the Fathers of describing this. Uh, definitely flourishes in the scholastic period of the 13th century. Uh, we see Bonaventure and Thomas both have theories of this. Thomas is actually quite developed. And then you see throughout the late medieval period, there is still this sort of theory. Uh, so it, it really is, and uh, in, in this is kind of, uh, I'll get on this rant a lot of times uh, during the series, but the, the, the sort of dispelling of the massive myth that Newman invented the development of doctrine. Uh, This is something which has been explicitly talked about in Catholic schools, uh, definitely since the time of St. Thomas. Uh, Some argue, uh, even before that, uh, in the Age of the Fathers, that this was something which was more explicitly recognized. Um, And I I tend to agree with that take, that always Catholic theologians have taught the development of doctrine. Um, And we'll get into that, actually, as the last category of the sort of history of Catholic teaching on the development of doctrine. But the third solution is going to be that all are actually uh, homogeneous, that really uh, theological inclusions are uh, virtually contained in uh, revelation to such a degree that they can be uh, defined as dogmas. So we see a sort of interconnected unity of the outworking of uh, reflection upon the revealed deposit. It's just a really... different degree of certainty and assent that we uh, have between the four. And this denies ecclesiastical faith because they're going to say that, uh, that there isn't a mixing of divine and human truth that occurs, but really there is a sort of unified whole and there's a sort of holistic organism. And the issue that we're going to run into, oh, actually, before we get into that, Uh, Do not forget, um, I have today uh, released a new typeset book by Father Austin Woodbury. Austin Woodbury was a a Marist theologian. Uh, He was a very strong Thomist. He was actually trained by Father uh, Lagrange. So, very good theologian, very good Thomist. And the best part is, he actually wrote in English because he was Australian. Uh, But unfortunately, his works are not uh, too easily. you, you can't really uh, get them too easily uh, because there's some okay scans. Uh, the scans are actually uh, not too good online. Um, I actually have found a location with physical copies, and I'm going to go visit that library uh, eventually. But I have typeset four of his works. Uh, they're all very good. The newest one uh, is The Gifts of the Holy Spirit. It uh, teaches a lot when it comes to... When it comes to the mystical life and the relationship of the gifts. Uh, The gifts are uh, unfortunately ignored a lot uh, when we get into these discussions. Uh, Everybody wants to talk about the virtues. Not many people want to talk about the gifts. So definitely pick up a copy of that. Uh, If you go to ChristianBWagner.com, the pinned blog post on there is a list of all the links for these if you want to get them there. Uh, Right now, uh, there's four. I'm working on the fifth. Uh, it's the gifts, of the Holy Ghost, true and false capitalism, uh, the bodily assumption of Mary, and then sanctifying grace. And these are actually introductory works, so anybody could read them uh, who is generally intelligent could probably understand uh, what he's saying. I didn't find any of these to be too difficult. So now the difficulty uh, with, uh, sorry, so the difficulty with um, the second and third solution. So the difficulty with the second solution is really something more historical. So those who posit the post Suarezian solution are going to have to explain uh, a few dogmas of the church that seem to have began uh, at the fourth degree as a theological conclusion and kind of worked its way up the rungs. And uh, somebody's asking a question in the chat. I'll deal with that at the end, but. The difficulty with uh, the traditional solution is explaining how uh, these things which uh, which ascend the rung are not a mixing of human and divine truth. How it still warrants the ascent of faith to have something which is uh, not explicitly uh, revealed and then formulated into a dogma. So there, there's these opposing difficulties of the second and third solution, and uh, I'm definitely going to deal with it a lot. I think uh, we can take a lot from the post-Suarezian solution to these problems, and especially I'm going to take some of the writings of Father Lagrange and uh, to be able to explain some of the difficulties found in the third solution. But the third solution uh, definitely matches up with the history a lot better than the second solution does. So uh, now when it comes to the divisions of how I'm going to treat all of this uh, throughout the next few weeks or months. So first, I'm going to talk about the nature of evolution uh, development in general. Then I'm going to talk about the virtuality of principles. So how uh, principles relate to conclusions and how this uh, relates to some of Suarez's error. The third is going to be about the authority of the church in relation to the evolution of dogma. The fourth is going to be the different paths of dogmatic evolution. The fifth is going to be about ecclesiastical faith. Uh, The sixth is going to be dealing with objections. And the second is going to be going over a sort of historical uh, overview of the teaching of the theologians uh, ever since the beginning of the church uh, to today um, when it comes to the evolution of dogma. And then lastly, uh, when it comes to method, uh, it's going to be both historical and speculative. And uh, so we're going to be both bringing up historical examples and looking at how uh, it fits into what we're saying. And then also speculative kind of dealing with uh, principles that we already know and applying them to having a coherent uh, thesis when it comes to the development of doctrine. And then lastly, uh, we are going to be following St. Thomas, uh, as in all things, as our guide, because St. Thomas does treat this uh, and he does provide the correct solution. So. Somebody asked about, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. There we go. So somebody asked about icons. So am I going to talk about icons? I'm not going to talk about icons. And the reason I'm not going to talk about icons is uh, eventually I will, just not part of this series. And the reason why I'm not going to talk about this as a part of the series is i i want this to be more uh, didactic bringing forth uh, principles and a few examples and i think uh bringing up a debate about iconography would kind of um kind of stifle the purpose of the series but i am uh, eventually uh, for sure going to have a video which treats of how the principles that i've laid out uh, are going to relate to the debate about the history of icons but For, as a very short uh, answer to the question, I don't think uh, icons are even really a development of doctrine. I think iconography really uh, treats of a question of praxis. Um, And and as I said uh, a bit uh, jokingly to somebody on Twitter, uh, asking about the history of icons, is about as important as asking about the history of mitres. Even though Second Nicaea uh, did say that it was an apostolic practice, uh, that is a historical claim of the Council, and uh, this really gets us into discussions about magisteriology, uh, what is exactly the uh, object of definition. The Church can uh, define historical matters uh, if they want to, as uh, the third degree actually infallible truth uh but this isn't something which is the object of definition of the church so i can uh, say uh with a straight face that the apostles didn't venerate icons but yeah this is really a question of praxis um this isn't really a question of doctrine um so really we would have to talk about the theology behind uh, iconography and how that relates to history uh, really the question of when a specific practice arose or not is is not too important for the discussion so that is my answer about that because people ask me about that a lot and uh, i know a lot of people get upset uh, that i don't think saint luke painted the first icon of the blessed virgin mary i'm sorry about that um, i just think that that's uh, really a that's um, not a good uh, view of history so uh That is all I have for you. Thank you and God bless.